Hello and welcome to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce, as I try and make sense of the world around me. We're available on the Financial Mail website and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. My guest today is a magnificent South African, a lawyer and diplomat who, wherever he goes, brings great credit upon his home country. I first encountered Nicholas Haysom in Durban when he was a dashing student leader in the 1970s, president, I think, of NUSAS. He then became a founding member of arguably South Africa's most iconic human rights law firm, Cheadle Thompson Haysom, before becoming Nelson Mandela's official legal and constitutional advisor. He then began a career with the United Nations, first as advisor to the mediator in the Sudanese peace process, and also chaired committees negotiating the new constitution in Burundi. He served in the UN mission in Iraq, worked directly in the office of the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan from 2005 to 2007, and as deputy and then special representative to the UN Secretary General in Afghanistan. He followed that with a short stint running UN operations in Somalia, and since 2019 he served as Special Advisor and from January this year, Special Representative of the UN Secretary General in South Sudan, working out of Juba. Obviously we want to talk to Finkhaisen about Afghanistan, but I'm going to try and do so recognizing one that he remains a working diplomat and that as a representative of the UN he treads an extremely thin line, and second, that with experience in so many really difficult, if not downright appalling places, he might not have some insight for us here at home. So with that, welcome to the show, Fink, and thank you so much for finding time during your summer holiday to talk to me. All diplomatic niceties aside, to the extent that that's possible, it must be very difficult to you to watch what's happening now in Afghanistan. Yes, it's heartbreaking, actually. Uh, the, the visual images... Uh in combination with the sort of narrative really gives one you know cause to question uh, what it was that we put so much effort into over a very long time in my case of course it was only four years in uh, in afghanistan but you're uh, while kind of trying to tease out the sort of intellectual issues one can't help but be grabbed by the very human stories that you'll that know a lot of people in Kabul who, who, and the rest of Afghanistan who will now be faced with the enemy. It's like liberating Poland um, and then leaving and allowing the Germans back in, or the Russians in that case, as it was after the Second World War. People must be absolutely terrified. Yes, I think, and I think, look, some of the terror comes from simply just not knowing what the future actually holds. Um, I had, over my period, I had uh, continuing engagement with some of the Taliban leaders. I used to meet with them regularly in Doha uh, as part of my broader responsibility to try and prompt uh, peace talks. And I must say, you know, uh, it is important to bear in mind that the Taliban is not al-Qaeda. They're, uh, in fact, a very nationalist-driven group and not a kind of global jihadist group. And part of the, I think, formula, successful formula, has been to blend religion uh, with uh, a kind of strong nationalist image. They didn't attack uh, people outside uh, Afghanistan, uh, and their rallying cry was essentially a kind of anti-foreigner nationalist Pashtun. What would they like to talk to? Uh, interesting. I mean, uh, of course, they were in a very different position then, and we were trying to encourage them to participate in talks. Uh, one sense that behind the Taliban, of course, there were other 
players pushing and pulling, and most notably Pakistan. But, you know, just reflecting on uh, those discussions, they were at pains to acknowledge that in their previous period of administration, when they had uh, been in charge in Afghanistan, they had made mistakes and that they were had developed uh, developed and evolved um, as a movement which recognized that uh, if they were in charge, they would pay much closer attention to uh, international acceptability. And they were keen to persuade me that they had a position on, for example, women's rights, which was not out of line with other Islamic countries or the other political factions in, in, in Afghanistan itself. I'm not sure that that was strictly true, but they would say their children, their daughters had been sent to university or were at university. They believed in the education of women and so on. So they were keen to project a kind of modern, a modernizing Taliban rather than a, a kind of primitive political organization. And in most cases, they could kind of talk the talk on at least some aspects of human rights uh, uh and on the mistakes they had made in regard to human rights issues. The one issue which remained uh, a, a kind of glaring uh, hurdle was democracy. Uh, and for the Taliban, at the, sort of at the heart of their ideology, legitimacy comes from, uh, you know, comes from above, not from below. Uh, and they uh, disputed both the value and the necessity of establishing a democratic order, which was quite surprising because many of them would have been, uh, to the extent that they had been based in Pakistan, very involved in the vigorous politics which uh, and political competition which takes place. It's in interesting the Pakistan. link between Pakistan and the Taliban because, and I don't understand it, perhaps you could explain it. I mean, the Pakistanis have, have been host to the Taliban, they've they've protected them, they support them. And where how, does that have a larger geopolitical explanation? Yes, it does. I mean, it has the obvious linkage, which is that Pakistan has always maintained that they have, first and foremost in their minds, their existential engagement with India. Uh, and that kind of defines their politics to, uh, you know, to branch and uh, their position in regard to Afghanistan was one in which they looked at it through that prism, a, a regime which was friendly to India and hostile to Pakistan would give uh, India uh, what they call strategic depth. And they wanted that strategic depth, which is to know that that part of uh, their border, their flank, was covered. And that whereas for others, you know, what happened in Afghanistan was of some sort of political or maybe even ideological interest for them. It was a survival question. So they didn't go so far as to argue that they should back the Taliban or that they back the Taliban, but they used it at least to argue that they should have a place at the table in any negotiated uh, long-term solution. But I think there are many who believed it was uh, sort of at the essence of the uh, Pakistani relationship with uh, the Taliban. With the Afghan Taliban. Remember, the Pakistani state had a more hostile relationship the with Taliban, the Pakistani The, the Taliban. Taliban themselves, these are the guys, but which, in, as when I was growing up, the Russians would call the Mujahideen, I presume. I mean, it's the same, and the same people who, first of all, knocked the British out, then the Russians have now taken the Americans out. I mean, is this the same, is this the same political 
nationalistic strain of people, or are they different? Well, that that Mujahideen was a broad front, um, which incorporated both sides of the groups which are now sort of at each other's throats. They were both uh, uh, sort of arm in arm in as a nationalist project seeking to evict the foreigners, being the Russians. And the Taliban only emerged in the course of that engagement at a time in which um, at least some parts of that broad nationalist movement had developed a reputation as really thugs. And the Taliban was a response to the thuggish behavior of some I think so. President Biden in the U.S. has sort of defended his decision to pull out and pull out quickly um, uh, and blames the unbelievable speed of the Taliban takeover on a simple unwillingness by ordinary Afghans to fight for their own country. Um, And I was watching a former British Secretary of State who we were talking about a moment ago, you know, Rory Stewart, call what Biden has done an extraordinary betrayal. Um, and make the point that the military presence there, the Allied, the U.S., Britain, uh, Germany, there was Canadian, the Canadians were there too, I think, wasn't very large. Um, well, Australians, sorry, not Canadians. And and there was no actual war going on. Um, and sort of ask what the point really of leaving would have been other than to keep a political promise back home. Uh, what will what will your UN colleagues in Afghanistan do now? Because presumably there's still quite a large UN presence in in that country. Yes, I, I'm not fully up to date. I do know that some of my UN colleagues have decamped, uh, and that the size of the mission has been reduced. I think just in response to the security profile of the country at the moment. For the UN times, I think to properly assess what its role will be going forward. But there was no doubt uh, that, you know, when I was there, we believed we were part of a broader international project to create uh, a functioning, viable, economically viable, as well as politically viable state. Uh, much of our effort had gone into the into helping the Afghans manage their elections and to stand up aspects of their state, such as a police service and uh, and other components. So, you know, the, and, and we lost people. You know, people were killed in the course of that uh, endeavor. And, and I lost friends. So, uh, and it struck me that the problem which Biden would have now is that the U.S. having persuaded its young to volunteer to serve and to put their lives on the line uh, in, in, in the service of uh, this uh, objective ideal, uh, is now in the, really in the position of saying it wasn't that important. It wasn't that important that we needed to continue to defend it. On the other hand, I'm not suggesting that Biden's choice was an easy one. I mean, I think there isn't uh, a real question which he's entitled, and, and as was Pentagon and others, which is how long are we expected to continue to shore up the Afghan state? At what point do we kind of... Uh, declare our engagement over and hand the keys sort of fully over to the Afghans. And I don't yeah. know what the answer you to that spent, is. as you say, four years in Afghanistan. I mean, you must have some happy memories there. When you think about them now, were they all based on a, on not on a on a lie, but on a, a misreading of 
sort of what was inevitable or, or wasn't or maybe there's another way to ask, to ask the question was it was this defeat which it appears to be um, inevitable yes i think that is the question i mean and i think we a lot of people a lot of clever people um are going to now want an answer to that question and i think much of the politics whether it's in the uk or the us is going to be around uh, the question of the strategy and the form of the engagement that the international community was engaged in, and particularly the United States, which had the leading role. And could things have been done differently? Uh, was the defeat, uh, which should I say, was the victory of the Taliban inevitable? And, and I think the answer is no, but uh, clearly what we've seen is a fresh reminder that asymmetric uh, warfare yields very difficult uh, situations uh, certainly in the field and this is the second very significant one in which you know the most advanced and developed armed forces have had to as it were retreat the other one being Iran. And it causes, yeah uh, but it has implications you know i was thinking what is uh, the posture going to be in regard to somalia or bukumhara in in west africa or you know the isis related forces in mali are these worth engaging, or do we? Does the West, uh, as it were, uh, and the international community, start to disengage from these? Uh, asymmetric what would your advice to them conflicts? be? Well, I think they. Uh, you know, I think these engagements are important, uh, and the values which we're trying to support, uh, which is functioning, stable, democratic, rights respecting. Nation states is 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 is, is part of the you had an interesting global engagement, a briefish period in Somalia as a UN representative there, and you were, I think, uh, kicked out of the country after asking a very basic question about the murder or some police action against a group of people. How I guess the question about doing the job that you do and going into countries that you have gone into, how do you possibly even begin to interest the people who control these places or parts of them in democracy, in voting and elections and... Mm. Mm. Well, almost everywhere I've been, there's a, a vigorous and keen interest in democracy. It's not as if it's fellow ground and you're introducing uh, ideas, uh, you know, fresh, fresh ideas uh, where there had been none. Uh, they almost all have uh, opposition parties who uh, lobby for democratic practices uh, and, and attempt to instrumentalize uh, the international community in the UN in particular in supporting these causes and in supporting the development of rule of law institutions. I've become aware, though, that the kind of transitions we're engaged in are pretty long-term affairs. There was a World Bank study done on, on the recovery of states after conflict and it basically came up with a sort of recipe of three issues I mean, one was jobs basically employment the other was basic safety and security of the population and the third one was to build institutions and particularly rule of law institutions the caveat though that they attached to that last one was that rule of law institutions or in fact institutions generally take a long time 20 years they estimated to kind of properly develop and develop the culture around them, which makes a parliament work or makes a court system work or makes a prosecutorial system function. Uh, 
and they were saying it was rule of law institutions, really, and they were basing it on empirical studies. You know, it wasn't sort of guesswork. Is you're looking at about forty years. So these are longer cycles than you know the West has uh, electoral cycles. You know longer than the electoral cycles in the West. So, or the funding cycles for USAID and DFID and, uh, and the UN agencies. So you really have to go in with a longer view than... I mean, a long a view, fix. 40 years is an extremely long time, and there's probably not that time anywhere, really. I mean, take South Sudan, where you are now. Do you effectively run the country, or, or are you there to help? No, we would certainly say we're there to partner with the government uh, in the tasks uh, that it uh, and the international community have set through the peace agreement they signed uh, with all the stakeholders in South Sudan. And that envisages a rather classic route of uh, building institutions, uh, developing a court system and some forms of accountability, but culminating uh, eventually in a new constitution and uh, what would be their first really competitive elections? And I think uh, I think uh, you know they can see the advantages to following that uh, that route. Of course, we're confronted by the fact that uh, the South Sudan state, the country that was born only ten years ago, the state itself is uh, you know still in the process of being established. The presence of the state in, outside the capital Juba has yet to be established, and we're faced with this dilemma that I've already referred to that. There are no, you know, or there are inadequate rule of law institutions, courts, prisons, police. And if you don't have those institutions when there's cattle raiding, it sets up a cycle of, um, or cattle rustling, a cycle of violence and revenge attacks for which there's no alternative to dealing with these sort of intercommunal tensions um, because the institutions are still uh, in the process of being established, which means that, that people embark on self-help. And this is not small. I mean, if you look at the figures across South Sudan, there's what we call intercommunal violence stretches from the east to the west and the north to the south. And even though the peace agreement brought a clear peace dividend and a reduction in the levels of politically motivated violence, that that gap, that bonus has been more than filled by the intercommunal violence which is established, which means there really is a, a task ahead of us to try and build these institutions a sort of necessary adjunct to the broader project of building a democratic, stable... Because you're literally starting in that case from scratch, right? I mean, it it just sounds so impossible. It reminds me of the John Cleese sketch where he (laughs) says something like, I can take the despair to the hope I can't stand. And, you know, you, you, you begin with an education system or a police system in somewhere like South Sudan, and if you stand back from it, and look at it on the map, you kind of ask yourself, and Africa invites this kind of question, I suppose, you know, those lines that are, get drawn on the map are, in a way, arbitrary. I mean, the South Sudan line must be arbitrary to an extent as well. You know, all the communities that you talk about, is, is there another way? I mean, is there a way of not imposing institutions on them, or that, as we understand, that, or, or, or is there life outside of institutions? Well, hopefully we learn along the way. So, um, for example, we've learned that to the extent possible, you've got to make better and more use of traditional institutions uh, rather than start from scratch. Uh, we've learned that the impossible cycle of uh, humanitarian crisis, which South Sudan goes through on an annual basis, 
sometimes relating to floods, but mostly relating to the fact that people can't plant because they've been displaced by war and there's a food shortage. If the international community doesn't offer up, a, currently it's about a billion in food aid, then you know there would be really significant damage to the population. Uh, so we've got to find ways of providing that aid which increases their resilience, their capacity to grow the food themselves uh, so that they need less uh, and are less exposed to these to humanitarian crises. So I think we, we sort of know what has to be done. It's just difficult to do it, and it's slower work than, than we think. We can't be too impatient, but at the same time, we can't be not impatient. I mean, we have to have the kind of urgency uh, which is required. And again, you know, South Sudan, like the other places I've worked in, has a vigorous civil society. It has a robust press. It has its uh, well, opposition talk, talk tendencies. Talk about that and, as we come towards the end. Just bring it back to South Africa, because you know this is a this is a country of hope and despair as well, and pessimists. And uh, some of them are you know white, but not all of them are white. We are uh, you know according to many people out there or on social media heading towards becoming a failed state. And I mean, I sometimes wonder when people talk about us being a failed state whether they know what a failed state really looks like. And you've been to failed states. You've worked in them for you know, the latter part of your career. Talk a little bit about South Africa. I mean, what do we look like from a distance? Well, I, I, I think, you know, the notion of South Africa as a failed state it, it takes place as a topic of discussion more inside South Africa than outside. And outside South Africa, people still tend to look at South Africa as a functioning model almost. Uh, you know, it has legal institutions, it has various institutions, but all of which seem to work in one way or another, the parliamentary institutions, the rule of law institutions. What I've learned about failed states, and I looked at uh, Sudan going through a collapse, or South Sudan, and thought I was going to see a real example of a failed state, and I'm even quite curious. But it doesn't work like that. The, the South Sudan state, no matter how bad things got, didn't fail completely. They were still government and a semblance of government institutions in Juba. The country which seemed more affected, uh, temperamental as it were, to kind of economic conditions was the North, which was a much more developed state, which had to manage its uh, rates of exchange much more closely and uh, uh, had to monitor inflation and civil service wages, you know, because it had institutions which were functioning, which seemed to suggest that the more developed you are, the more at risk you are of you know, the vagaries in the international financial system and the need to uh, secure a, a pretty constant source of income, whether through exports or aid. So in a, sort of ironically, I think South Africa's exposure is, is because it's much, much more developed and sensitive than other countries to uh, international economic trends and well, I think uh, on that pressures. Quite. Very nice. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I know you have nice, warm, sunny weather outside for you to enjoy for the rest of the day with your family. Really appreciate you talking to me this morning. Lovely to see you on the screen, though this is a podcast. And I'll be back next week with another interesting guest. In the meantime, keep safe, keep your distance. For goodness sake, get vaccinated so we can get tourists back here in numbers and save the country. Bye-bye.